0: Have you back for season two, episode two of MFA Writers. I know that a lot of our listeners are current MFA students like me, while many of you are undergraduate students who are thinking about applying to MFA programs. So I just wanted to take a second to say good luck to everyone who has just started the first semester of the 21 22 school year. I just finished my first week, and if you're like me, it's felt a bit overwhelming to be back. But hang in there. Here's to a great semester of writing, reading, and studying. And hopefully you can find some time to squeeze in an episode of our podcast every two weeks. We really appreciate all of you listening and supporting us and the great writers featured on our show. This episode with Katie Shore of Hunter College was requested by Andre Vinogradov. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com Feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at mfariderspodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear from listeners. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Finally, as always, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy the episode. To MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today I'm with Katie Shore. Katie is completing the second year of her MFA in fiction at Hunter College. She's written for McSweeney's and Motherly, and she's also written and performed a one person show at UCB Theater, Ars Nova, and Joe's Pub. She's an audiobook narrator and the mother of two young children both of whom wish her stories were scarier. Today she's brought an excerpt from a story she's currently working on titled Old Things.
1: Old Things. My daughter dressed every day like she was auditioning for a production of Oliver, mixing orange plaid dresses with woolen tights the color of lichen and the ancient pilling cardigans of a babushka. Every few days she would wrap her hair in one of my old silk scarves, her thick, dark bangs and both ears sticking out the sides, bedraggled and forlorn, feral and matronly at once. Her name was Bunny. She was seven years old. Bunny couldn't stop drawing. She drew on every available surface, her sheets, her bedroom wall, her skin. So by the time I found the first grade worksheet at the bottom of her backpack, she had already covered it with a long potato face arched eyebrows, a flat black line of a mouth, and swirling hypnotized eyes. We've got to do this, she said, thrusting the paper at me in the small kitchen of our two bedroom. Do what? What it says. Bunny, I can't read this. I'm the one who has to read it, she said, snatching the paper from me. Interview an elder relative. There are eight questions and I have to ask them all. Who do I talk to, she demanded. Grandma Shelley is an elder relative. She's not old. Do we have someone older? Point taken. Neil's mother dyed her long hair red and could get up and down from the floor as fast as I could. And that was when I thought of Aunt Lillian, my great aunt, one of the last of the old socialist Jews I came from. Really, except for Lillian and her ex-husband, and probably still sentient. All the old Jews I came from were dead. How old is she? Ninety-three, I said. Bunny stood reverently still. Have I ever met her? I shook my head. In fact, no one in my family had talked to her for two decades. Is she nice? She's your great-great-aunt, I said, pivoting. Is she Milt's great-great-aunt, too? Yes, your little brother gets the same one as you. But milk can't come, she decided. And I should have seen even then what a bad idea this was. Bunny, we're all her family. She's never even met daddy, I said. Bunny stared me down. Why? For stupid reasons. So this would be big. A mitzvah? How do you know that word? We had a menorah, sure, our token substitute for a tree in December, and a ragged old Haggadah floating among the picture books, retained for its age, not its lessons nor its prayers. We didn't belong to a temple, and I had no plans for us to. She blushed. I don't know. I just heard it somewhere, okay? It's fine, I said. Okay. But, Mommy, you don't have to be scared. I'm not scared, I said, laughing. What an exhaustingly attentive child she was. Why would I be scared? But the insinuation and really Lillian's name, like an incantation, coaxed something trembling from me. I recalled her volume, her intensity, the dreadful battles, her battles at every family gathering. It was the fighting I longed for. The wobbly buzz I'd get in my stomach at what might happen, at who might be seen for who they really were. Would it be me, I wondered as a kid, though it never was. My father and his sisters hadn't spoken to Lillian since she called my uncle Julius a sellout. Lillian's daughters blamed her for their father's headaches, for his unyielding guilt, but also for the belittling, the negativity. Lillian pitted the two of them against each other until they followed the example of their father, the union organizer turned highly paid labor professor and author and went on strike. They withdrew affection, For 19 years, they had not spoken to her. Who is she like? What's great about her, I told Bunny, is that she's not like anybody else you've ever met. But as I said this, I knew suddenly who she was like. I saw poor Bunny and all that she seemed unable to bear, not just her little brother, but everything that made her angry. Everybody on my father's side had assimilated in what I'd call the cultural sense they stopped talking Jewish. My father, my aunts, my uncles, they put away their deep burrow accents, buried their surety of doom, their wry candor. It wasn't about God or the Torah, neither of whose threats captivated my family, but about not sounding like the kind of person some people want to kill. Sure, my husband's parents served on their temple board, but Neil and I weren't like them. We couldn't afford synagogue dues anyway. As for my mother, she was Presbyterian.
0: Thanks for reading, Katie, and thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I mean, uh, I can tell you're an audiobook reader because <laughs> you have such a <laughs> such a nice reading voice. That was great. I loved listening oh, to thanks. it. Oh, thanks.
1: Thanks. Yeah, it's fun to read. It's so weird to read your own work and hear your own voice.
0: Yeah, I bet. I bet yeah. if you're used to reading other people's work all the time, is it is it nice to read your own work or is it just kind of strange or...
1: Yeah, it's both. It's both because, you know, as you know, like when you read your own work aloud, even just to yourself, like you hear the things that are working and what's not working. Um, But there's this weird feeling like where you've forgotten what you were doing in the piece or that you even wrote it. (laughs) And it's just like disassociating. And then suddenly it's you feel very connected and you're sort of like riding the wave of, of connection and and. Lack of connection to it. Yeah, it's weird.
0: It's always a weird feeling going back and reading a story that I wrote, you know, a long time ago, because I do get that feeling like that it's almost not mine. Like I don't really remember writing it. I mean, of course I remember writing it, but it it feels foreign to me in some way, which is also, it's always like a very strange feeling.
1: Yes, I feel that way. We just had workshop this past week and I had a story that was um, going up for workshop and Um, I had to read a page of it and reading it. I felt like I had chosen this page thinking, I really like this page. You know, this is going to work out well reading this aloud." And then I heard it and I felt, I I don't even know how, whether I thought it was good or bad, but I, I just, I couldn't remember that I'd written a line this way or that way. And I just submitted it. It was really weird. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I get that sometimes where, you know, I'll go back to an old story and I'll, I'll read a line and, uh, and I'll think like, Oh, that, that was, that was a really good line. But like, I think about it in a way like that somebody else wrote it, you know, like, yeah. Oh, that was, yes. that was cool. That was cool. What the author did. And it's like, Oh yeah, the author, was me. of course yeah. it goes the opposite way too, where I read a line and I think, why did the author make that choice? <laughs>
1: and, then it yes. was,
0: and then it was Those me.
1: ones feel, I feel closer to those. Like, I feel like, Oh, that's me right there. That mistake. But when it's good, I feel like, how did that happen? Yeah.
0: Well, there's. A lot of things I want to talk about um, today with you, including writing as a parent, um, your work as a performer, and also your use of humor in writing. And I was excited when I uh, read this piece, this excerpt, that a lot of those things make an appearance, like right in the first line of the story when you write, My daughter dressed every day like she was auditioning for a production of Oliver, mixing orange plaid dresses with woolen tights the color of a lichen and the ancient pilling cardigans of a babushka. I love that opening sentence. By the way, thank you. It got me thinking about like how we use things from our real life when writing fiction, and I was curious for you. Would you say that like a lot of the seeds for your stories come from things that have happened in your in your real life?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I I, I feel like I I wish I could. I don't even know if I wish this, but I I definitely had a sense that at some point. When I write, when I'm really a good writer, I won't draw on my life, which is very naive um, in some ways. And also just is not my experience. It's not going to be my experience. Um, I mean, this, you know, this story is fiction and and I don't, I don't have a daughter, but there's so much that is mine here that is Mm -hmm. so funneled directly from, you know, not just my brain, but people that I know and love and myself and it just gets sort of put in that blender and then like turn I don't know if it's a blender actually it's it's some sort of like it goes through onto a conveyor belt or something and becomes something else but it's but it's quite familiar
0: Uh, well my my friend, uh, Sasha DeBevick McKinney, who was a guest on this show, like episode two, she wrote on Twitter the other day. I thought it was really funny. She said, I'm paraphrasing here, but she said something along the lines of uh, that she had just figured out how to write fiction. And it, it was, you you start off writing nonfiction, and then you don't stop yourself from lying, which I thought was, mm, yeah. was kind of funny. Uh, and you know, I find that um, I often start with something from my own life or from my past as well. But by the time I finish the story, it's unrecognizable. And that original seed sometimes is not even in the story at all. Um, Is that kind of what you mean when you talk about like going down the conveyor belt and becoming something else?
1: Yeah. Yes. My weird conveyor belt metaphor. Yes. (laughs) That that is what I mean. (laughs) Thanks. Um, Yeah. No, I, well, that's, I mean, I feel like if I've learned anything in this MFA program and and I, I do feel I've learned quite a few things, but it has been the transformative experience of revision. And I mean, it's just revision had always felt to me like, you know, this thing you have to do, I guess, if you didn't write a good enough draft, which is just insane, because you revision is the only way to get anywhere, I feel like with fiction, um, to get past your sort of like, simple sense of what you think you might be writing about. And, and so it's like what you're saying, like, even in the first draft, right? You, 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 you start with a seed of something and then you end up somewhere that is very different from maybe what you imagined or from the, the quote unquote truth, I guess, of, of what it was. Um, but then it's just like, keeps. the, then revision allows you to just like, keep doing that, like insert these little bits of truth as it is to you, as it seems to you. And then watching that just get like wound up in this new way and becoming, uh, both like unrecognizable and then And familiar in a new way, I think.
0: Well, there's that, um, I think it's Einstein quote. I'm probably going to butcher this, but I think he said, uh, no great problem is solved on the plane of its original conception or something like that. Yeah. And I think about that with writing a lot. I don't know why I'm quoting a lot of people today, but
1: (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Adam, um, Hazlett, who's one of our professors is very good at like summoning quotes and I, I am less good at it. Um, but I love it. I love I love jot them down. And um, I feel like I i am just finishing George Saunders craft book um, that just came out, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. And I think he might quote I think he might quote Einstein in the beginning.
0: I'm fairly confident that I heard that quote through him.
1: OK, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's good. It's it's worth quoting.
0: Well, so you spent your 20s acting in New York. And you told me that during that time you shored up a whole lot of odd, often hideous experiences that added up to little else beyond the sort of stuff a writer of fiction might make use of, which I thought was kind of yes. nice. Uh, so tell me about that time in your life. How important do you think it was that experience to your development as a writer and as a person?
1: Yeah. Well, it was. It was my experience. So I feel, you know, there are parts of I've had periods of time when I've experienced regret, why did I not pursue writing, you know, in this more serious way sooner? And then I think, I don't know, I, there, maybe there are a million reasons and reasons I could talk to my therapist about, but I, I feel like, um, I, this was a path I really wanted to go down. And, um, I, I loved it. I hated it. It was, it was like any anything else you might do in your 20s when you are forming as a person um, or I certainly was. I, I was I've, I've been slow to form. And um, and yeah, I, um, I I feel like I even forgot the question, but because I can get really lost in thinking about that time. But um.
0: Well, we were talking about like pulling from our own lives for our fiction. I'm curious, like how much that time period acting in New York was kind of formative for maybe the fiction that you write now.
1: Yeah. I mean, I definitely have struggled not to include actors in my work, uh, not specific actors, but the experience of being an actor or being in the company of, of, um, actors and artists, uh, performance artists, um, so I think it has informed my writing in that way, but also really, I experienced so much rejection and so much. Um, I, I think like really helpfully formative um, humiliation, as, as I've mentioned. Um, but but not but luckily I was I never um, I, I feel very lucky because there are people who surely experienced much worse, and mine was always kind of funny. Um, and or to me, it was pretty funny. And so that has thickened my skin and um, perhaps has allowed me to exist slightly outside my own body at times when it was necessary and watch what was happening with a kind of um, a just like a raised eyebrow, just thinking, well, this will be a good story <laughs> and not not even like a piece of fiction, but something to tell something to um, make sense of at a later time. and And I think, yeah, that's been helpful.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, a thick skin is important to have in this business, I think, because, you know, you, you mentioned dealing with rejection in, you know, the acting world, but it's <laughs> – you have to deal with so much rejection in the writing world as well and knowing how to deal with that.
1: Do writers experience rejection?
0: Oh, I guess, I guess just me. <laughs> no,
1: no, me. Yes, I, I know. I thought, like, well, I'll go into writing because I think there are more – there's stable ground there. Um, oops, but um, – <laughs> Yeah, at least you can hide a little bit as a writer, in a way you can't as an actor.
0: Well, you mentioned taking that time off between, um, like, before going back for the MFA. Um, there are a lot of students, I think, who go straight from the undergrad to an MFA program. I also took time off. I spent most of my twenties living abroad and teaching and traveling around, and that was really formative for me. Like, I, mm-hmm. I don't think I would be as good at doing the MFA now if it weren't for the time that I'd taken away from academia. So I'm curious if you feel the same way. You mentioned that sometimes you have a little bit of regret, but do you think taking that time off was is was helpful to you? Is that something that you would recommend for other people who are thinking about an MFA?
1: I think so. I mean, the reason I would recommend it is the reason anyone gives advice, which is to like, kind of make me feel good about the choices I've made. Like, I think you should probably do this because it's what I did. And so (laughs) I, I, but, you know, we have um, in my cohort, like my, the second year cohort, there are a couple students who may, they may have taken like a year off. I think one didn't, um, but, but they're quite young and they're really good, really talented. And, and I'm not sure I see that they're not getting, you know, they're, they're getting a lot out of the program. I think they felt, and were ready, um, in a way I know I was not at age 22. I, I, I could just, I I can confidently say that for me personally, I would have been a disaster at that point. I'm not sure I would have even gotten into a program, but I think, um, I think I was so spongy at that point that I would have just been like, just saturated with all of it and, and not knowing how to even climb out of everything that i was learning and now i feel i have an appropriate amount of kind of um i guess the the thicker skin or just um the ability to question things which has taken me a long time questioning authority has been something i've struggled with and now as an older person i don't struggle with it as much
0: well for me uh I was an awful, well, I say awful, I wasn't a very good student as an undergrad, I don't think. Uh, and so I needed the time off. But there are moments where I, I think like, oh, I wish I would have written and more consistently in my 20s. I wish I would have read more in my 20s. But, um, you know, like you said, we love giving advice on this uh, on this podcast, but it's always with a little asterisk next to it, which is everybody's different. Yeah. The decisions that you make are going to be different than what other people make. And one is not right and the other wrong. Um, it's just about finding the best path for yourself.
1: Absolutely. I, yeah, I, I feel that very strongly. Because even if what I did was a mistake or if someone going too early was a mistake, like you, you can make something out of any mistake. In fact, that's like the thing I've learned, you know, in this program is you can revise. You can always revise.
0: Well, during your time away, you created a couple of humans. And uh, yeah. that's that's pretty cool. uh and I hear a lot of a lot from writers that, like, they say having kids really change something in their writing or change the way that they viewed their characters or change the things that they actually started writing about. And so I'm curious if – have you noticed any changes in the things that you're writing about since having children?
1: Well, yes. I mean, I'm not going to write, like, a campus novel. Uh, I'm not going to – it's unlikely that I – you know, I – I I suppose there's like a myopia with it where I think, well, I, you know, got to include kids in this because they're just, they're, they're always like permeating my writing space. Um, I mean, like intruding upon it. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think they've made me more, um, uh, economical with my time. Like when I'm not with them and I have to be working, then I usually am working. Um, I mean, it's another area where I feel um, obviously having kids doesn't make you a, a better or worse writer. It just, like, whatever else you're filling the time with, whether it's kids or whatever other things people who don't have kids do, what are those things? Because I'm sure they're really fun. Um, those those just, like, slide in. Um, but I, I would read a quote. There is a quote that I have on my bulletin board. I could read this quote, which is a Zadie Smith uh, quote that I just keep up as a reminder that it's okay that children are in my work. Um, and she says, my books are filled with children, the thought of them, the memory of them, and the round experience of having been one and then having one. To me, that's an enrichment of literature. So I like to try to tell myself, if Zadie Smith said it, then it, it <laughs> might be true. Um <laughs> It's certainly an enrichment of her writing. I don't, you know, and I hope maybe at some point of mine.
0: Well, Zadie Smith's amazing, obviously. And uh, one of my favorite writers is um, Kevin Wilson, who writes a lot about um, parent child relationships um, after having his own kids. So um, I think it's fertile ground for uh, writing material. I'm, I'm sure. And you know, you use humor a lot in your writing. Is that something that has always been there for you or something that you've kind of worked towards incorporating in your writing voice?
1: Um, Yeah, it has quietly been there, I would say. Um, I'm a naturally self-deprecating person and someone who likes to find the levity, um, like sort of obsessively. Um, But I... I would say that the reason I shouldn't have gone to grad school right after undergrad is because that was a period of my life um, when I wasn't writing things that were funny, because I didn't think it was serious to write funny things. I mean, it, and it is and it isn't. But um, so I, the, the fiction I was writing um, as an undergrad at the University of Michigan was very, um, not even dark, but just just serious, you know, intense. And I'm using that voice to try to convey it. Um, and then I think when I came to New York and got into acting in the comedy scene and I met my husband soon after, um, and he's a very funny person and funny writer, then I, it just liberated this part of me that had been there as a child and, and even a teenager. And I felt like, oh, okay, that's, it is acceptable to do that. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I think the funniness has has always been there. I was I was a comedian as a kid, like a real silly kid. Um, but I yeah, that kind of went under for a while, and I I dredged it back up.
0: <laughs> well, uh, we've already mentioned George Saunders once, but um, I've heard him talk about that. How like when he was younger, he thought incorporating his own kind of jokes and funny voice that he grew up using into his literature felt like, Oh, that's not serious. That's not, that's not literature with a capital L. So I can't do that. And it was the moment when he let that guard down and let that voice into his work that he started getting published. So being true to your own voice, I think is more important than trying to like conform to some idea of what a writer's supposed to sound like. Right. Yes.
1: Yes. And it, it- me how difficult that is to do I mean I, I do think many of us have to go through periods where we try on these other voices and in some ways for me I feel like that's what acting was as a whole like it was let me try being this and this and this and this you know um and see how effective I am and see how good that feels or not um but I think as a writer too it it, it feels I guess like a rite of passage in some way and then for some people their voice is clear for them early on um but i i feel in the among the people i know um that it takes time often to get there and and i'm not sure why we have a sense i mean well there's like what we call the canon and we could we could talk a lot about that but um but it's really hard to let your own uh sense of comedy come through when you're writing literary fiction um it's hard to give yourself permission
0: Yeah. And we've mentioned revision a couple of times. Do you find that you actually use revision to work towards your voice? Like is the voice that comes out in your first draft, is that like that's your voice and you're mostly revising for content or are you revising sentences to be closer to your voice? Like, like as you're revising a piece?
1: Oh yes. I'm revising for everything. I I would say I, this is a recent thing that I've come to understand. Um, In my first year, I think Um, I, I, you know, I did revise pieces, but I don't think I, I really excavated them in the way that I've been doing in the second year. I I think something like, maybe it was a certain amount of confidence that clicked in that allowing me to say like, you can just destroy this and, and pick, pick up the tiny pieces that work and rebuild it. And it's fine, but you're not, you're not going to evaporate into nothing if you do that. And if the piece itself won't, um, so I feel like I revised for, I mean, there's the comedy part of me that's like, punch it up, punch it up, you know, make this quicker, cleaner, you know, um, hit the joke faster, move this line up here and it'll, you know, but, um, but everything else too. And, and sometimes the voice in a piece doesn't emerge clearly until like a third revision. I I had that with old things it, that was started out as something quite different um, that was really much more focused on the, the first person, the, the narrator and as the story goes on, it focuses much more on this, this great aunt.
0: So when you're revising and you're, you know, like killing your darlings, as they say, you know, cutting out this and that to like pare down a piece. Do you find that like the less extra material that's in a piece, the more that voice can shine?
1: Well, yes, I think in some ways, yes. I'm, and this is something I'm struggling with now, I would say. um, you know cuz whoever is editing your piece or giving you notes on your piece and whoever you decide to listen to in your workshop doing that you know is going to is going to have a sense of what is important and what should be sloughed off and and it's usually different people have a different idea as, as you know like it's really baffling how you can have so many different ideas for how to approach it um but i i i do i do struggle with um I think I, I had emailed you about this, just about, you know, economy and efficiency. And I, I'm always, I'm, there's a part of me that's always thinking, what can I get rid of? And then I, I do wonder, you know, whether that approach is who, who, where that's coming down from what, what's like, what tradition um, I'm drawing on that from. And, and if I'm listening to the right sorts of edits in, in that way and, um, yeah, it's something that I think is something I'm going to work through a lot this semester, as I read more craft. I'm actually reading the um, Matthew Salis's book. Um, oh,
0: I've heard great things about it.
1: Yeah, and I'm really curious about that, and you know, because he's critical of the um, Iowa tradition, which did have like sort of a politically motivated concept of what craft was, and and, and I think I don't think enough about um, the value. Of having a story that's maybe teeming with things, like is that bad? I, mean, I, I I do think there's a general feeling of like the you know killing your darlings and cut it down. And I don't know. I don't know if that minimalism is essential.
0: You know, like we've now we've talked about how difficult it is to get published in this industry, and when you start using words like good and bad in relation to a story. I'm not sure it's completely useful at a certain point. I mean, like I had a, I had Kai Tanaka was on here a a few episodes back um, and he was talking about his time editing for Gulf Coast and how reading all those submissions and talking about them um, with the other readers made him realize that there is no such thing as a quote unquote good story because it's so different from person to person, what one person considers a good story or a bad story. Um, and I could see how you might get like caught in that trap of thinking like, well, if I cut this and I cut that, you know, if I pare this down, that then it will be good. Mm-hmm. That's why I kind of asked you about the the voice, finding the voice in revision, because I find it's a slippery slope. And I'm curious if this is the same for you, that I do want to cut things down because in general, I find that that's better for my work. But sometimes I, I can actually lose the voice as I'm cutting things down and that's not good for anyone i don't think so
1: i know i know it's tough right yes it is it is um and and i find the more things i read like like sometimes it's just helpful to read if i'm feeling like i'm i'm in that like excessive pruning mode where i'm i'm cutting too much then I, if if there's a way for me to read something more lush um like you know just like in you know, novel, that might like help just nudge me away from that desire to just hack away. And I'm not sure if that's necessarily effective, but, um, but, the, but you, you know, there's, there's kind of like a, a music to every piece. And then, and what I'm working on, I would say lately is, is like tuning into that to the frequency of it, like you're saying, it's, you know, the finding that voice and not wanting to kill that voice with too much editing. Um, I have this new story that I'm working on and I, I realized I left out a lot in this, in this draft that we, uh, that was workshopped. And that was sort of exciting to think, Oh, you want more of this? Like I can, I can do more. Uh, that's, more is fun.
0: Yeah. Well, there's such a spectrum, you know, when writing a story Because, you know, like you said, like if you're writing a novel, you get kind of that luxury where you can leave in more and like lean into that voice a little bit more. And then on the opposite end, you have flash fiction, which I quite enjoy writing because just for the practice of revision, really being able to cut something down to a thousand words or 500 words is is a useful exercise, I think. Um, One of the reasons for me when I decided to pursue an MFA, people would ask, why are you doing this? one of the simplest answers I would give was I want to learn how to revise. I don't feel like I know how to revise well. And that's one of the things I want to learn. I'm not sure I've, I've quite learned it yet as you know, <laughs> listeners can tell right now, it's not as simple as just learning how to do it well, because it's, you know, one of the fun things about writing fiction is it's different every single story. Um,
1: yeah. And I, it's
0: just a new adventure, right?
1: Yeah. And, and I certainly haven't like mastered it. I, I think for me, I don't know if you had this experience or having it. There's just so much fear around rereading my work and it, with a with a willingness to just, you know, say no or yes or less or more or whatever it is. Um, and I think some of that fear is has been has gone away with with in this MFA program where I can like I can really look and and it's not like looking into a mirror and seeing like myself as a skeleton. Like, I, I just yeah. imagine, like, Oh my God, what is, what is really in there that I, what did I actually write?
0: Well, um, you know, I mentioned for me wanting to pursue the MFA was partially because learning revision. What about you? You took 10 years off. You started a family, had a couple of kiddos. What made you want to pursue the MFA?
1: Well, it, it felt, uh, well, so I had written a novel, first of all. Um, I, right before, um, I had my first child, like in the year before I started writing a novel and, um, got excited about it and revised that and had a baby. And, um, and then I was, I think it was about a year and a half after that, I got an agent with that novel. And so sort of went on a journey with that book. Um, and a sad journey, uh, in some ways, but, um, but, uh, so when that chapter, to use a literary word, <laughs> um, ended, I'm sorry, that was terrible. But um, <laughs> then I felt like, like you, you know, I wanted help. I felt like, OK, how do I do this again? You know, do I know what I'm doing? And I, I and I and I felt like I really love I love writing and I love I don't know if this world will take me in. I don't know if I have any place in it, but I just love doing this. And the thought of the MFA felt it it didn't feel like something um, like, you know, many graduate degrees feel like a way toward to, to getting a job. And obviously this one is quite different, but it just felt like what a dream to be able to do this. And so that was, and I wanted to also be able to teach in some capacity, Um, you know, while getting the MFA and maybe after, um, I I have no illusions about the fact that it is not a PhD. Um, but, but that felt really exciting to me. So those were the reasons.
0: So, um, in case readers don't know, you tried to sell that first novel and you weren't able to, right?
1: Right. Yeah.
0: So what I'm hearing is like part of wanting to pursue the MFA was maybe to kind of like regain some confidence in the whole process.
1: Absolutely. Yes, yeah. I mean I had I had so many ups and downs in that long kind of journey. Um I I changed agents. Um and I really love my current agent and and I, I did feel like there was a lot of faith and enthusiasm in my book, um uh, but not enough from any publisher to buy it. And so that was you know, and, and I think there were reasons for that that I understand and reasons that I maybe didn't understand. And those were the reasons that, you know, I wanted to look at myself as a writer and see and face all of my, the parts of me that I, that that I didn't understand and maybe could use better as a writer. um, And, and you know, look at my, my deficits, I guess.
0: You know, it's a pretty common story that I hear, honestly, like writing the first novel and not being able to sell it. My One of my professors here at UMKC, Whitney Terrell, tells that story all the time. He wrote his first novel um, and had an agent and uh, tried to sell it and it, nobody bought it. And at that point it was like, okay, how bad do I want this? And yeah. he decided I want it. And so he wrote the next one and he sold it. So, um, you know, it's, it is a matter of just, I, I guess, um, continuing to do it in the face of rejection, you know, like yes. circling back to how we started the, all of this. There's a lot of rejection and I'm, I'm starting to really think the the writers who quote unquote make it are the ones who just persevere and yes. they just keep going.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, and, and I, I certainly knew that to be true in the acting world. Like if you are willing to put up with the indignities of all this because you love what's great about it, you'll, and then you're good enough, you'll work. Um, and I, I think the same is is true for writers and, and I'm much more willing to put up with the writerly indignities I've, I found. Um, yeah, no. It, and, and the other thing I, I remember thinking actually, and maybe this is might be helpful for someone to hear is that I thought, okay, I had a point with my book where I felt like this is, I do really believe in this book and it's not going to sell and I can reckon maybe, maybe I'll never reconcile those two things, but I know them to be true. And I thought, well, maybe if I get an MFA, uh, an editor will be more likely to accept my weird book, my next weird book, because someone else, you know. And and I I wish that that weren't the case, um, and I've certainly gotten so much more out of an MFA than like just, you know, the three letters. Um, but I I do wonder about that, and I I guess I'll have to report back at some point. But <laughs>
0: yeah, well, so you ended up at Hunter College, the MFA at Hunter's a two-year program with the option to pursue fiction, nonfiction, or poetry. What made you choose Hunter College?
1: Um, Well, so I did not realize that um, I I wasn't going to leave New York um, because it would just be too disruptive to my family. Um, Although I did think about other programs outside the city, but I decided I just, I couldn't apply. And then risk getting in and then having to make some difficult choice. Um, but Hunter uh, has a fellowship. So you are able to go, if you're a New York resident, you know, you can move to New York and become one. Um, you can go for free. And, and that's the case for the fiction and the poetry programs right now. Um, and that just felt like it's also a very small program. And there's six students in a class. Our class has seven. Um, but it, in each cohort, there are six and so the the size it, it being very, very small and um, and the fact that it was totally funded, just felt like um, that would be the right choice for me, given my life with children and how much time I could give to anything. Um, I felt like, okay, then I can pay for the the childcare that I may need to cover this time, and yeah.
0: Well, let's go ahead and talk about the funding a little bit then, because it is a little strange at Hunter. I mean, it it does seem to have better funding than most New York City schools. But like you said, um, in-state tuition is covered for anyone who is in the fiction and poetry programs. Um, If you're an out-of-state student, then you'll have to pay the difference between the in-state and out-of-state tuition until you can become a New York resident from what I can tell that means probably the first year. And then the second year you would get your in-state tuition covered. Correct me if I'm wrong. You know, those are
1: really good questions that I'm not, I'm fairly sure that everyone I went with had received the fellowship and you get, and you have it, it starts in your first year because you spend your first semester working as a research assistant to a writer. And that's kind of like how you earn your fellowship. Um, but, I know that we had people, when I was a first year, there were people in the second year who had moved to New York from other places. And I think if you, as long as you establish residency before the program starts, then you are eligible for that funding. Um, and, and CUNY tuition is very affordable if you can't. Um, because I was, you know, I was worried for a brief moment, like, will I be able to be a research assistant, you know, given part-time work and the um, the Hunter workload and with and my kids, but, uh, but I was able to do it. Um, but had I not, I, I, I think the CUNY is certainly more affordable than most other New York schools.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, part of the reason we wanted to do this podcast is because the information on the website sometimes either isn't clear or is inaccurate, isn't up to date. But according to the website, it says that, um, you know, if you establish, uh, like you said, if you establish residency before the program starts, then you don't have to pay anything. If, if not, then you would pay the difference the first year, and then the second year you'd be in-state. But that's something for listeners maybe to reach out to the school and
1: ask. Definitely, yeah. I, I know people were able to do it who moved to New York from another location. So it, it seems possible.
0: And then you mentioned this fellowship. Um, from what I can tell, all fiction and nonfiction students receive something called a Hertog Fellowship. Is that what you were referring to?
1: Yes. Um, and. And I don't want to speak about the nonfiction students because that program has, it used to be memoir and it changed to a nonfiction program, but they, um, it's really new this year and I don't know as much about it. Um, But I know for fiction students, the Hertog is what we um, have gotten. Um, And we were each assigned a a writer Um, and there was some, this was um, Peter Carey runs the program. And so he... Kind of makes those decisions, but we were part of that process, and so everyone was, in in my cohort certainly was was happy with uh, the writer they were assigned.
0: Well, tell us more about that fellowship and working with that writer and what all that entails, because that's pretty unique to the Hunter College program, and it sounds really cool to me. Yeah. So um, you're actually working for a semester directly with a writer in New York City on one of their projects, helping as a research assistant.
1: Exactly. Yes. So I was assigned Rivka Galchin, who is this wonderful writer. um, And I'm sure you've seen her pieces in The New Yorker. She just had one that was really great about living in Midtown. Um, It's so funny. Um, Yeah. And she's wonderful. And so I met with her early on in the semester and she kind of gave me a few options of things she was working on, um, writing projects. And I chose um, to help her with research on her novel. Um, And it, it ended up being really interesting. And in some ways, not at all what I expected to be doing, but I spent a lot of time in the New York Public Library. And I'm so happy this was before COVID. Um, This was, you know, the fall of 2019. So I would go to the section of the New York Public Library where you can't take the books out, you just have to look at them there. And I would sift through this, I was um, doing some Research on fifteenth um, and sixteenth century details having to do with a book festival in Germany. It, you know, there was a lot of esoteric not not esoteric, but information that you'd really have to go digging for to find. The internet didn't have as much as I hoped, um, so it was cool. I, I mean, I would sit there for like hours. Um, and flip through these old books and take pictures on my phone, write notes down, and kind of assemble it and pass it along. And it, I, I did learn a lot about research. And I thought, wow, it would be great to write a historical novel. And it would be great to have an assistant who could help me write this too. You know, and not, I, I wouldn't say that Rivka was so reliant on me for so much, but just little bits, um, I did what I could do. Um, and, and I will say like, no one is overworked that, that I have met at Hunter. Um, the writers understand, you know, the amount of time you can give. Um, so it was, it was very humane always, um, and lovely, but just interesting to see what writers, you know, and every writer would be asking for different information, some of which was accessible. And some of which, like some of them, some of them would have questions. Like my people in my cohort would tell me that felt to me, like, how would you ever find that out? You know, like, and they, maybe it would involve like calling people, uh, finding ways to interview people. Um, you know, anyway, it was, it was really interesting.
0: Yeah. Sounds super interesting. Yeah. Um, and you said that that fellowship, Covers your tuition in the program. Are you also receiving some kind of stipend for that work as well?
1: No, there's there's no stipend. It's just covering your tuition.
0: And then you also mentioned earlier wanting to get some teaching experience. I saw on the website that maybe there are some teaching assistantships through Hunter College. Is that something that you've been able to pursue?
1: Yes. I taught um, an undergraduate class last semester. Um, and this is a Hunter-specific class um, associated with the program program called the Distinguished Living Writers course. And I think they've changed the name to the Distinguished Writers Seminar, maybe. But um, either way, they basically have uh, four to five authors visit campus. And before COVID, they would come and visit um, both the MFA classes and they would visit these undergraduate classes, the sections of this course. Um, And the students would get to ask them questions and you know, they would read their work aloud and then they would do a reading. Um, And so we experienced that for a semester before everything moved online. And so when I taught the class last semester, and along with a couple other people in my cohort taught separate sections of it, um, the authors visited virtually, but we weren't able to have the class time with them for budgetary reasons. (laughs) So, which are totally understandable for every college right now. Yeah, but it was, I love teaching. I was, and it was really meaningful to just be in this virtual space with 18 and 19 year olds. I mean, some of them maybe were 20, but many of them were freshmen. Um, And just to, I don't know, to witness like this very bizarre time and to witness like the beginning of their college experience and how different and frustrating it has been, but also to try to I don't know, find ways to bring some like excitement for the work, you know, to them It's a small, it was like it caps at 20. So it was a pretty intimate class in that way. I just loved it. And I loved my students. And yeah.
0: One of the benefits of, of going to a program in New York city is the fact that there are so many great writers that live there that are working there that are around a lot. So, you know, judging from what I can tell on the Hunter website you know they have uh, a certain number of faculty members who are permanent to the college but then as you mentioned there are a lot of um writers who come to campus as part of that writer series or um maybe just to sit down with you all do you get to work with these writers at all
1: so we haven't um we in my first semester, um, we had, um, Nana Kwame Brenya come visit. He was great. His collection was wonderful. And he met with us and chatted with us. And, um, and actually when I got this George Saunders book, I, I, my local bookstore was hosting a virtual interview between Nana and, um, George, I'm calling them by their first names they don't know me. Um, (laughs) but, but it was really fun to see him, you know, he couldn't see me, but it was fun to see him again in that way. Um, but he was great. So we, I wouldn't say we worked with him, but we got to speak with him and it was really, um, like a, just a lovely experience. Um, but yeah, we were definitely impacted. Um, once the pandemic hit, I'm not sure, I'm pretty sure we had no visits before everything shut down. And so then everything went virtual and, and that's just, that's just shifted it. But I think it will all come back as soon as I'm done. Probably as soon as I graduate future classes, will everything will rise back up again.
0: Well, I'm going to have to remember to send this episode to George Saunders publicist since we're mentioning him so much. Yeah. So, from what I can tell each semester students take like three classes um it seems like it's a workshop a craft course and a literature course most semesters what has that been like for you what have been some of your favorite classes that you've taken at um hunter
1: yeah I mean it feels like every class was so rich and interesting and it was such a sort of a journey it's hard to say you know what I liked best um so in, in my second year we take two classes and then the third is basically thesis work. Um, but I will say, um, my class last spring, my literature course with Tracy O'Neill, who is now at Vassar actually, um, she just finished a PhD and so she's there, but she, we, we got one more semester with her and she taught a literature course that I loved. Um, I also loved Roxanna Robinson's literature course in the fall. Um, But in the in the second semester, Tracy used this uh, critical response process, which is a kind of so this was not a workshop. It was a literature class, but the critical response process is an alternative uh, approach to workshop. And we actually workshopped the books themselves. We treated them as though they were sort of works in progress and we would take turns acting as the author on any given class and sort of read the work and then assume, you know, not in too goofy a way, the identity of the author. And I feel like it was a really brilliant approach that Tracy had conceived of. Um, and, and she has a book also that I'll just plug quotients. It's really excellent that came out last year. Um, uh, but I, I was so excited by that process that I used it when I was teaching um, Hunter students last semester and, and found that, like, they had a really good time with it. And I hope to teach uh, after I graduate again and use that that method, um, which is both for workshop but also for looking at literature. It's just, yeah, if anyone wants to look it up, it's Liz Lerman's critical response process. You, If you Google it, it'll come right up.
0: It sounds amazing.
1: I could talk about it for hours.
0: <laughs> yeah, in some of my classes we've – you know, we've, we've done that where we'll read a short story and kind of workshop it, even though it's already been published. But I like the idea of having someone kind of pretend to be the writer of the piece. That sounds really interesting.
1: Yeah. And it, it like, there's just something, it just softens the whole experience. So instead of talking about literature, as though it's this like brittle thing, but also this untouchable, you know, none of these pieces were necessarily canonical, but, but it just made it feel so much more alive, and and it was funny. It was funny to say, well, here's why I wrote that, and I, I don't know. I it loosened up the students I worked with. I I don't know if they would tell you that they loved it, but I think they got a kick out of it, and I did. And I felt like I don't know. It had this oddly empowering effect while being very silly.
0: Yeah, it sounds fun. Yeah, and you know we've we've talked a bit about the faculty at this point. I wanted to talk about. Um, or ask you about the community at Hunter and like whether you felt supported there, especially as a parent with kids who I'm guessing are probably at home during this time. So I'm, you know, like how supportive has Hunter been um, for the students like during this time and just in general?
1: They've been great. I mean, I can speak to the professors I've had. Um, So Peter Carey, um, Taya Obrecht, who's um left after last year um for a, a I think it was a residency um in Texas. Um and then Adam Hazlett and ZZ Packer. So those have been my sort of core teachers. Um great writers. <laughs> great writer uh, yeah. yeah. I mean phenomenal writers and really you know loving, kind, generous teachers. Um so I can just definitely speak to those four um And I can speak very highly of them. They've, they've just been really, um, devoted, I feel like, to the program and to us as students. And, and I've been lucky that my cohort has been very close and very, um, encouraging of one another. It doesn't, we're not really competitive with each other, um, at all. And yeah, I, I've certainly heard from people older people who've graduated from MFA programs years ago, just about more stressful environments. And while we have had stress, you know, in the past two years, it's not been from each other, from the other students and and from these professors who've, who've just really been very, very loving and kind.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because whenever I was first looking into MFA programs, one of the things I heard a lot is you have to be careful because sometimes the cohorts can be really competitive. It can be really cutthroat. And that has not been my experience, and through doing this podcast, it doesn't seem like it's been the experience of many people at least going to the programs you know that I've talked to so i'm I'm glad it's the same for you. I'm glad that the community's good
1: yeah maybe it's a myth I mean maybe it's I don't not know. yeah, yeah I, I don't know either
0: or like you said maybe it was a more common you know in the past, but yeah maybe some of that's been shed you know
1: yeah i I think things definitely come down from the teachers and Um, You know, the teachers I've had have have not brought that energy to class, you know, like who's publishing something or anything like that. It's just it feels like we're all not really, but it feels like we're all holding hands and standing in a circle and just trying to, you know, make our way through together.
0: Well, I, I'm sure that there are some places where you know there is still a negative environment. So, if anyone's listening, we're not, we're not, uh, you know, we're not saying that uh, your experience is invalid or anything like that.
1: Yeah, I, I'm sure.
0: I'm glad that your experience has been good there at, at Hunter. So, I'm curious also about just how you've handled the workload um, with your kids, who I assume are at home how you've balanced the coursework and writing time and the family and, and just how that's going for you.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really hard. Um, and it's harder with COVID. So my younger child is three and goes to, um, a five day a week preschool. So I'm able to, well, he's able to be there and I'm able to not take care of him every single day. Um, and then my older child is in public school, um, And he, so he's in school a couple days a week and then remote other days. And we have a little, we have a wonderful babysitter, um, who comes a few hours, um, twice a week. Um, so just saying that, making sure that's clear to any other parents, like, you know, people, sometimes it's hard to talk about the logistics of your childcare situation, um, openly. So I definitely have, um, help in some ways, uh, but I'm usually spending a fair amount of my week with my older child and then with my younger child when he's home from school. Um, Yeah. And it's like, I don't know, it's just hard. Every day is hard. And and my husband's a writer too. um, So we both have these very fluid, floppy schedules um, and a lot to cram in, in the time that we have. And yeah, I think every day we say like to each other, like this is, This is so hard. And, you know, it's, there are a lot of harder things, especially in light of COVID, like COVID has made this much harder. And then, and yet seeing the sort of stark contrast between our experience and that of so many people who are in much more challenging circumstances, then I feel, I don't know, really lucky. And like, oh, I just, I'm sad because I didn't get another hour of imagining, you know, what this character would do. I'm lucky.
0: Well, um, we mentioned at the beginning of the episode that you do work as a reader for audiobooks. um, And you told me before the interview that you record it in your closet in your home. So that's another thing that you're doing from home. I'm curious just how you got into reading for audiobooks, what that entails, what it's like. Do you enjoy it? How's it going?
1: It has been... um really weird. And fun. I, I, there've been some books that I've really loved narrating. Um, you know, and this is this is something I did as an actor in my 20s that has just like stayed with me. And um, and I'm lucky because it's nice to have this kind of part time work. Um, well, especially while I'm in grad school. But uh, yeah, it's really wacky to be in that closet. And, you know, like I'll finish writing a a workshop critique letter and then go into my closet and record (laughs) a romance novel. And it's, it's very odd. Um, But I, I, I do think it kind of shakes up any sense I had of like, a writer should be like this or that or whatever. And then I feel like, well, I'm doing this thing and I have this messy life um, and I'm a writer. So, you know, certainly there are weirder and more complicated jobs one could have. Um, and I, and I feel like we can only just embrace that. I I thought at some point, well, I, I won't be able to do that because I'll be writing, but you know, you have to make money the way you can. And so that's, that's been a wonderful thing for me.
0: Well, I mean, there's no denying you've had lots of interesting experiences and, um, you're doing lots of interesting things. And so before we go, I just want to give you the last word. If you have anything you want to add or any advice you want to throw out to anyone who's considering an MFA.
1: Yeah. um, I mean, I think if you're considering an MFA, you should really consider it and go for it. If it feels like something you can't shake and you just want to do it, which was my feeling. And I was just so nervous to, to apply. I feel like you should just try Um, because if you feel that passionate about your writing and you want to be in a community, um, it's worth doing.
0: Well, I'm happy for you because you seem like a wonderful person. You're a wonderful writer. I wish you nothing but the best and thanks so much for stopping by today.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me.